This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 91. All right, let's go. You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey there, this is Michael Blanc. Welcome to the show today. Today, I have a, a success story that I want to share with you. Josh Sterling, who's done what we all want, which is financial freedom. He's quit his job with multifamily investing. And not unlike other people, he's took a few, uh, shall we say, he's had some distractions. He's done some single family house investing, a bunch of it, before he realized that, my gosh, I'm not going to get to where I want to go and it's way too much work. And he changed tracks and he went to multifamily and just blew it up in the last couple of years and left his job and now is faced with, what do I do all day, right? Fantastic story. Lots of lessons learned here because it did take him a while to kind of figure it out. And, you know, if he were to do it all over again, he says he'd have a conversation with with a 17-year-old younger self and fast track that that took him a little bit longer to do. Just fascinating journey. And I really hope that it inspires you to kind of take action wherever you are right now. So with that, let's get right into the interview with Josh Sterling. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Michael. Looking forward to it. Go back and why did you first start looking into real estate investing? Like what was going on in your life that made you start looking into real estate in the first place? So for me, it really started with leaving high school and the beginnings of my adult life. I had watched my dad growing up working in the construction trades my entire life. And he had ingrained in me to make sure that you get a job where you work with your mind and not with your hands. I think he must have told me that three days a week at least. And so... I left high school ready to go to college, get a good job, buy my own house, this predestined path that I think is really, really common. And I set out to do exactly that. I grew up out in Lake Tahoe, California, left and went to an aviation school in Daytona Beach, Florida. It's about as far away as you can possibly get. Went through a four-year degree and got all of my pilot ratings and became an airline pilot right out of college, which was very fortunate at the time. It was somewhat of a tough industry to get a job in. I was able to walk out of school right into a job and I was on my way. Not long after that, this is about 05 timeframe, maybe a year into that, I was living in Florida. I decided, why well, I, I can't rent a house anymore. You're throwing away money. I'm going to buy a condo down here. That's about all I can afford with these crazy prices. And if I don't buy something soon, it's going to be more next month. So this is all the signs of uh, where this is going. But I went ahead and I did that. So now I was an airline pilot. I was probably 25, 26 years old at the time. I had bought my own house. I felt like I was on top of the world for a few months. Living the dream. And, uh, yeah, living the dream, right? It doesn't get any better. Then, of course, the Great Recession comes along and the airlines are probably one of the most unstable industries and were one of the first to start seeing cutbacks. And by that time, I had upgraded. I was a captain at an airline and you know, really thought things were going good. Then one day with about three weeks notice, I got a letter saying that our airline was essentially cutting staffing in half. And what it meant for me was a demotion to a first officer, which came with about a 50% pay cut. And that was effective three weeks from whatever date. Here we are somewhere in late 07 or early 08, somewhere in that time frame. That kind of frustrated me a little bit. I had worked you know, so hard to get to where I was. And with one swipe of somebody's pen somewhere else, it was just wreaking havoc on my life. And I looked back and I 
I found myself in extreme student loan debt, you know, to the tune of $175,000 or so, upside down on this new nice condo I had purchased by a significant amount. And then now I was going to be making something like 30 grand a year. It was really, really depressing. And all through what I viewed as no fault of my own. I'd gone out and been a good employee and showed up all the time and you know, operated the airplane safely and efficiently and all the things you're supposed to do. And here I was with all this negative outcome. So that right there made me think, okay, I've got to do something for myself, something that I control. And so you thought real estate. Why did you think real estate and what strategy were you thinking when you concluded that I got to do something else with real estate? So I didn't initially think real estate. I initially thought anything that I can control. And the first business I thought I would start was a valet trash service. We had this condo and there were guys that would pick up your trash at your doorstep and deliver it to the compactor on site. And I saw what our condo association paid them and I thought, what a good business. So I actually thought I was going to launch this silly other business. To me, any business that made money, I was interested in. But I quickly realized that I didn't have what it took to open a business even like that. You needed to manufacture bins. You needed to employ people. There were all these moving parts to businesses that I really didn't have any knowledge or skill or desire to do that. So I thought, real estate, that seems really easy. I think I read a book or a podcast I heard or something that said, you buy a house and your rent's $1,000 a month. Your mortgage payment is 500 on it. You keep $500 a month. And I thought, well, isn't that nice? So that kicked me into it right there. So you started through your strategy sounds like was single family house fix and flips, holds, or what were you thinking and doing? So my first actual deal that we did, and I dove full speed ahead into it, I had just gotten transferred through that whole downgrade at the job. So I ended up in Southeast Michigan. I don't want to say Detroit. We're south of Detroit. It's a world away. But in an area where properties were fairly cheap at that time, we were looking at, you know, from forty to $60,000 type properties. I went out and I found a single family house that uh, we could purchase for $40,000 was our first property. And that was the strategy. I'm going to start buying single family houses and, and renting them out. That's awesome. And then what happened after that? How many did you do? And at what point did you start transitioning to multifamily? Okay. I did single family for quite a while. We started in September 09 and just kept the stay in the course after one of those worked, then two of them worked. And we just kept rolling with that. And we got up to about 25 single families. And then I realized that I was creating kind of a problem for myself. I had this portfolio, but I had nobody to help me with it. So now I was starting to get a bunch of phone calls. I was starting to have to deal with somebody who might be late on rent. All the problems you hear about, I was the only one to deal with them. And I thought, well, this isn't good. What am I going to do to get out of this? How am I going to still run this business, but not have to personally deal with each and every single issue that comes up? Well, you need a bigger business so you can afford to hire people. So That was about probably 2012 that I realized I really need to get into multifamily for the purposes of building scale. So, right. So you kind of realized that, my gosh, this was a lot of work. And I'm sure the money was okay, but it was a lot of work. Now, at the time when you had 25, were you at the point where you could quit your job or did you have to continue doing what you needed to do in order to do that? So I had also in that transition, as I was building up the real estate portfolio, I had left that airline pilot career field and I'd become an air traffic controller. So the good and the bad in that was when I got that pay cut and I was making $30,000 a year and I I learned how to live on that, I probably could have survived on that with 25 houses. But since I'd gotten a new job and gotten a better income, now all of a sudden you realize that your lifestyle inflates a little bit. I probably couldn't have at that point or it wouldn't have been a glamorous lifestyle. I, I wouldn't have starved to death, but I wouldn't be flying around the country on vacation. 
So you realized that you didn't want to keep doing it because it was a lot of, a lot of work to manage these houses. And so you're thinking multifamily. What did you do to kind of get started with that new journey? So I didn't specifically pick a date and say, I am now just a multifamily investor only. And to be honest, we still will do single family on select deals if they come along the way we build our portfolio. But multifamily started looking more and more appealing because of the scale. So along the way, I had told everyone that I came across what I was doing and why I was doing it, everybody I worked with, everybody I saw, friends of friends, more so because I enjoyed talking about it and it was just fascinating to me. And I think at the time it stood out a lot more because we were still coming out of that recession and people were still really, really gun shy about real estate. That's what led me to my first multifamily deal. A guy I work with, he had a friend who just so happened was a commercial broker. I would have never known that, but this guy had heard me talk about real estate day in and day out saw me you know, working on it um, or, or talking about it at work or whatever and referred me to my first commercial broker I met that's, that's gone on to be really, really uh, nice uh, partner to work with. Yeah, that's fantastic. So tell us a little bit about this first deal. How did you find it? How big was it? A little bit something about it, how you got into it. Yeah, so maybe a little bit showing of the times, but this broker actually called me and said, "Hey, I've got a deal for you. It's off market, you know." So he brought me this broker. He brings me this twenty-four uh, unit apartment building, and it was somewhere in the sixty to seventy percent occupancy range. The seller was really struggling to run it; had kind of decreased it from a full operating building to that in about a five-year period and tried to put a deal together for us. Through a bunch of negotiation back and forth, we weren't able to get to a number that worked and the deal kind of fell apart. But I did something that I think is key and I still do it to this day. I just left the door open. I said, okay, I can't pay what you want for it right now. But if you ever decide that you want to sell it for the number that I'm at, then come back to me. You know, Otherwise, good luck. So that's interesting. So he ended at that point. Now, the question is, how did you get that broker? How did you know that broker? How come that broker was taking you seriously? Like, uh, tell us a little bit about how that came about, how you met that broker and built a relationship with that person so that they called you with an off-market deal, which is where everybody wants to get to, but it's really hard and it takes some time to get there. Obviously, you were there at this point. What led up to that? Well, I was clearly not a multifamily expert by any means at that point. And I probably wasn't as well-versed as what a lot of people that have gone through the education available nowadays are. But he took me seriously because I did, I think, what generally good people do. When he called me, I called him back. He could see that I was running a reputable business with what I was doing already with my single family portfolio. And and I think he could just tell that I was a guy that not only if it was a, a business deal, but we could go have lunch. And I think you know I, I made it so I'd be an enjoyable person to be around. And I still work with that broker to this day. That broker probably brought me over 50% of my current portfolio. And that's just another reason. Once you don't need a whole lot of brokers, you know, you need one or two brokers, and you'll have all the deals you ever want. And we see that all the time. Like especially if we go into a new city, and you know, it takes a while to build a relationship. Once we do a deal with a student in a city, oh my gosh, those brokers will just—we're like the first people he calls. And so we get all these off-market deals in that way. And the same thing happened for you. You obviously had a reputation uh, for for doing deals and that kind of stuff that really helped you. So this deal went away, and then what happened? We went back to doing what we do. We bought a couple more single family houses. We were just kind of out there floating along, doing, you know, growing what we could. But that seller reached out 
to, it turns out that the son of the seller had gone to school with my wife. And so we parted ways and didn't even have any contact information, which was a bad call on my part. But uh, he reached out to my wife through a Facebook message. And a week or two after, later, she got that message, you know, and we came back together. And, and now I was negotiating with the seller directly. Um, I, what I did here, it was a very awkward situation because, you know, that brokers get paid when they sell a deal. <clears throat> and I most certainly didn't want to cut my first broker ever out of that deal. So as soon as that seller called me directly, I, I called him up and I said, hey, this is what's going on. This was probably about a year later. Contractually, there was no obligation for anybody to pay anyone any commissions. And I said, the deal doesn't really work. This deal is in a lot more trouble now. But are you okay with the fact that I'm going to talk to this guy directly? If you have any issue with it whatsoever, then I will let the deal go and he can go find someone else. And I truly would have because I really believe that that relationship with that broker is so much more important than any one deal. That's right. He said, go ahead. I want to see you guys succeed. And that's what we did. So we negotiated back and forth with that seller. We had a, quite a bit more leverage now. That property had gone to, I think it was 42% occupancy. It was below 50. They were three years behind on taxes, which in Michigan is when you go to tax uh, foreclosure auction and they sell the property for you. And I knew he only had a few months on that. So through a stroke of luck, that seller had the note had been sold that he was also not paying his mortgage payments. So that note had been sold a person who buys notes. And then that person who buys notes had come back. And ironically, the seller's family actually had plenty of money from other businesses. They just weren't real estate people. They paid off that note and the seller through the whole thing ended up owning this property free and clear that they were running into the ground. <laughs> so it's a very fortunate situation because the only way to buy a building that I know of, or, or one of the, you're not going to get bank financing, let's say on a building at 42% occupancy. So we were able to work a deal out and buy it on land contract. And all of that was possible because of the way that the seller owned the building now. So it sounds like the owner owned it free and clear, but can you talk about what it means to buy something on land contract? Because it sounds sure. like, uh, smells like some creative financing. Yeah, so somewhat creative. And I knew a little bit about it. Uh, funny land contract story is my first ever property that I bought. There was a giant sign in the window that said for sale on land contract. And at the time, we were scraping together every penny we could we could get. And I walked up to that house and I told my wife, I go, I don't know this land contract. It sounds like kind of a scam. We're just going to pay cash for it. And you know, lo and behold, I could have saved myself a lot of uh, principal <laughs> right there. But what land contract is, is where the seller basically becomes the bank or the seller holds the note on the property. And we had to do it in this situation because it's very difficult to have a bank finance a property that's not stabilized. They typically want at least 80% occupancy and sometimes even 90, depending on the lender. And at 42% occupancy, there's just no one going to do it. So we came up with a standard type land contract. It was, uh, I believe, 6% interest. The purchase price was $514,900. And we put down $120,000. So basically, we put down a full down payment. The remaining payments on that three hundred and some odd thousand, three hundred eighty, ninety thousand dollar balance were paid monthly at six percent interest, amortized over a thirty year period, and then we had a balloon payment in five years, meaning that I had five years to get my act together, get this building in shape, and get the seller refinanced out of that property. That's pretty nice, right? So some creative financing. You didn't need a bank because a seller financed it. Forty percent occupied, uh, pretty distressed. And how long did it take you to kind of stabilize it? And what happened? So one of my negotiating points on that deal was I didn't know if it was 42% occupied because the seller 
was running it terribly or because there was something wrong with the building that people just didn't want to live there, right? I already knew from single family that if you make them nice, they will come. If you have the nicest possible property with a fair market rent and the most professional management, people will rent from you. So I went into it with that belief, but I didn't have anything to guarantee that. That's what we did. We started going through and just upgrading units. And it ended up taking us 14 months to be able to get that next refi done. I had planned on up to five years because of my uncertainty there. So I had negotiated a five-year balloon. That's awesome. So you were able to do a cash out refinance? Yes. It took us 14 months later. We were at 100% occupancy. We'd also made a ton of capital improvements. Um, we basically poured every penny and then some back into that property. And I always, uh, I always look at it like a spiral. So you can get the seller that gets something. And I see this a lot. You get, you get a seller sometimes that will not want to put money into a property for whatever reason, siphon it all off so they won't make repairs. So then a few people move out. So now they have less money. So they make less repairs. So now a few more people move out. Next thing you know, you're three years behind on taxes, 40% occupied and, and in a pinch. And the other way to do it is to come into a property with a bang, make some nice common area repairs, start upgrading units so you get higher rents. People desire to live in that property more. Rents go up even further. It's just this self-feeding cycle here. And next thing you know, you're full and rents are up. Our rents were up about 125 bucks a door even at that point, and we were full. Yeah, that's awesome. So you bought it for around, what was it, 500 something or another? What, what was the, the valuation at refinance? So I bought it for 515. I actually just refinanced it. We closed this month on the second refinance, which is agency financing. But yeah. uh, I believe that first note, it got valued somewhere around 800,000. I only owed 390 on it. And so I was able to pull out quite a bit of capital from it. It might have been in the sevens. I, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but I was able to pull out more than I put into it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, that's fantastic. And now let's talk about your second deal. When did that come about and how did you finance that? So because it it just so happened, because now I did that cash out refi, I had recouped quite a bit of capital from that deal. We closed that and the refi in I think December of 2014. So basically the first of 2015, I was out there and now I had seen a multifamily deal come full circle and how nice it can be to own a deal with no money in it, right? So I was out there now, I was calling brokers, I was getting on LoopNet. I was doing all the... I was actually dedicated to finding an apartment building at this point, like I should have been all along. And lo and behold, that same broker comes back to me and goes, I've got a 53-unit deal that is running really well. It's full. It's great. This is like the most awesome deal and you're going to love it. And this was I don't know, probably somewhere in the spring of 2015, which we ended up closing on that deal in June of 15. Using the cash out refinance money from the previous previous deal. Right. Because at this point, I didn't have any idea of how to raise money from other people. So every bit of equity I raised had to come from a cash out refi somewhere else. It's not like I had a rich uncle I could call up and get three or $400,000 from. But right. I was so using you, this leverage. Yes, right. So you're using cash out refinance from some of the houses to, to, to buy the first one, then you roll that into the second one. Now, at one point though, you ran out of money, right? And you had to actually raise it. Can you talk about? Can you talk about that? Sure. So that kind of jumps into my next deal. You know, the one we mentioned here in 2015, the 53 unit, if I can step back to that, one thing I found interesting on that deal was I went into it thinking, oh, this deal is going to be so great because it's fully occupied. That was a lot of work getting a building up from 40 to 100%. So now that I've got one fully occupied, I'll just sit back and collect checks. Ended up having a whole new set of problems there. And we ended up having to lose a bunch of occupancy and kind of reset the tenant base, which was very poor and it needed a ton of CapEx. So it ended up being more of a project, which is what led me into to wanting to get into syndication. I ended up dumping 
as much cash as I'd pulled out of the other deal, plus still spending everything that that building spun off to put back into CapEx there. And I thought the problem with this whole strategy is that at some point I can't do this anymore because I can't keep coming up with four or five, six hundred thousand dollars to purchase and rehab these buildings. I need to raise this money from other people. So that's kind of what led me into the syndication path. Yeah. So your, your single family, family house strategy allowed you to do some refinance to finance the first ones. And even mm-hmm. people that have money, they're like, oh, I'm just going to do my first deal with my own money. And I said, well, that's great. But, but then what? <laughs> right. right. So then what? Are you going to stop or are you going to do a project every three years when you can refinance, right? So eventually, everybody comes down to syndication. How do I raise money, right? So you had that realization and then now you already had some deals under your belt. So I'm sure it's, it was a lot easier for you to raise money with a little bit of a track record. But can you talk about how you started broaching the subject to people and how you start raising money from people? Yeah. So it goes back to what I said earlier that I, I had always... Uh, just talked about what we do. I was very open about it. I was very willing to help other people starting out because I I felt like I never had that help. So it just felt good to give somebody a piece of knowledge that I wish I would have had. So I'd always done that. I'd always talk to, you know, family, friends, you know, friends of friends. If I'd go golfing with a few guys, I'd tell them what I did. You know, I, I truly loved and believed in what I was doing. And so it was natural to to talk to people about it. I had a real confidence that it worked. I knew it worked because I could see what it was doing in my own life. So with, by the time we went to actually raise funds, I did have quite the portfolio put together. And that absolutely gave me some credibility that I would have had a harder time uh, putting together starting from scratch. But knowing what I know now, it's very doable starting from scratch. It's more about people trusting you and people understanding that you have researched this, that you do know what you're getting into and that you have some solid numbers and a solid deal to back it up. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think you said a key things weren't out there raising money. You were out there sharing your enthusiasm about what you're doing. And Absolutely. a lot of people feel like they don't want to take friends and family money because you know they're afraid of loser money or that they would be bugging people by asking them to invest. And really, the truth is, like you said, you'd be holding back if you did not present them with an opportunity because people are always looking for a better return and a, and a low risk profile like this. So if you did not share an opportunity like this with people, you're doing a, doing them a disservice. And I have found that people are actually very happy to hear about opportunities like this. Was there any kind of a surprise that, uh, or, or a particular challenge that, that you found as you were raising money? You know, I really didn't besides my own fear going into this. So I had put this new building under contract and the purchase price was going to be 1.3 million. I decided that I needed to raise $300,000 to close that. I was getting 80% financing on it and I thought I needed about 40 to close it in additional funds. Um, which was, by the way, a little bit short. Little little tip there, raise a little bit more than you think you need. If I didn't raise this money, I didn't have a refinance strategy to go to. I, w- I had kind of tapped a lot of my equity. Most certainly, I wasn't going to be able to pull out a chunk that large to close this deal if I couldn't raise the money. So that was you know, kind of a scary position to be in. I never want to go back. And, and this was a different broker that I had kind of started to build a relationship with. And I most certainly didn't want to come to him and say, sorry, I can't close the deal because I can't find the money to do it. So, yeah, so you were under pressure to get this thing done. Absolutely. What actually happened was as soon as I started putting out basically a a sample deal type package or the deal, you know, I had put a little package together showing the actual deal that I had under contract while I was in due diligence, knowing that if I had to back out of the deal, I could always back out on due diligence. But 
the interest just started flowing in. When we actually, I went down the list of uh, potential investors I'd been keeping up and I had already filled up the deal fully subscribed in about a 24-hour period. It went extremely quick. The, the key there is, and I think you mentioned it earlier, is that you were constantly talking with people, right? The reason we do the whole sample deal package, which for those who haven't listened to it before, is we create an investor package on a, on, a, on a real deal. It's just that we don't have it on a contract. And we use that as a conversation piece to talk with investors. And what you have been doing is leading up, months leading up to this, you're constantly talking to people. So when they get a phone call from you going, hey, you know what? I'm actually raising money. They're like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of people are finding that when they don't do that and they get a deal on a contract and they try to raise money from from scratch, it's very difficult because the people don't know you in that context, right? So what you've done is basically started the conversation much, much earlier than that. You know, for me, it was probably even maybe years in the making. But I think along the lines of what you're getting at right there, when you come to somebody and you've never talked to them before, you don't have any track record of doing this, everyone starts somewhere. When you come to someone out of the blue and say, hey, I'd like you to invest twenty five or 50 or or $100,000 into this deal. This is the new real estate thing I'm in. That doesn't sound like you're a very stable type person. You just started this last week. You're raising all this money and, and this is great. But how do I know you'll be in it in two weeks? Everyone knows those people that float around from the next greatest thing. But if you're talking about something for months leading up to it and telling them this is what it will look like, we're just out there looking for those deals. Now, when you actually come to this person and say, you remember all those sample deals I told you about? This is what we were looking for. We hadn't jumped on anything because we hadn't found that quality deal. But look, here it is. That's a, just a natural credibility right there. That does the same as having 140 units for like I had and going into it with that credibility. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly right. So, at what point did you actually quit your job then? I had quit my job already between the syndication and the deal prior to that. So, May of 16, I finally left what had become a very, very good paying, you know, almost a $200,000 a year job. It was very tough to step away from it. It had allowed me not only a, a great income, but flexibility to work on my portfolio and the business I was building while I was at my other job. I mean, you actually get a lot of downtime there. And so it was a nice benefit. And the added fear was that it was the type of job where there's an age requirement to get in. And I was beyond that at this point. And so if I were to leave, I could never come back. And it's not like it, as an air traffic controller, that experience doesn't really relate to any other industry. So basically, once I quit, I was pulling the plug for good. There was no turning back. So it was really scary. And I had about probably 140 or 150 units roughly when I did that. So you kind of burned the boat. So it sounds like you probably could have left earlier, but it would probably require a lot more courage than waiting a little longer. But so, so what was that like, Josh? You know, you come home and now you're not working anymore. Like, what was your life like afterwards? So I thought that I would come home and keep in mind, I'd been working a full-time job running a portfolio of, you know, maybe 140, 150 doors, whatever it was. I had basically two kind of part-time-ish employees. It was very not uh, put together, but high workload at the time. And I thought I would come home and just relax, sit down, watch Netflix all day. And what actually happened was a few days after I didn't have to go into my my real schedule anymore, I didn't have a 40-hour place a week to be, I kind of felt the need, the desire to do something, you know, to be productive. And so that's what I started doing. I started growing my, my business. I started adding team members. I started putting systems in place. I started, most importantly, looking for their deals more aggressively, which led us into that, that syndication. And I started just 
kind of building the systems that should have been there, but I was enjoying every minute of it. And it wasn't like I wasn't working. And that's for whatever reason, I envisioned that I would just not work. I would just like be on vacation permanently. But it was that I was working on my own terms. And that's what I've always been about. I've always had really cool jobs. Uh, when I was 17 years old, I ran a loader for a concrete plant. It was like playing Tonka toys all day. I mean, it was a really cool job, but you had to be there 40 hours a week. I was an airline pilot flying jets all over North America, basically. And cool job. But you got to be there, you know, however many days a month it is. You know, all these jobs... I don't know if I've ever told you this. I only made it two days on the high school tennis team because I had a real hard time with people just telling me what to do and when to do it. But I'm not afraid of hard work. And that's what I went right back to. And so that's that's what my life is like. I go into my office regularly. I, I spend a lot of time there, but I want to. And when I want to leave and come home and have lunch with my daughter, 16 months old now, and, and have lunch and spend an hour or two playing with her, I might do that in the middle of the day or run to the gym in the middle of the day or take the afternoon and go golfing. And I have a, an aviation passion or, or sickness, whatever you want to call it. But we have an airplane that we fly all over the country. And you know that's a great way to go golf and see concerts. And, and that's an amazing uh, thing to be able to do. But you can't take the full benefit of that if you have to be back at a job Monday morning at 8 a.m. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's interesting. If you had to have a conversation with, a, with your younger self, how far back would you go? And what would you do differently knowing what you know now? <laughs> I'd go back to probably 17 years old, right? As I was uh, making that decision to go to college and I would not go. <laughs> I would <laughs> not focus on buying my own house to live in. I would basically flip the strategy on its head. And I would go out and I would start learning, educating, getting to the point where I was, uh, where I could at least talk like I knew what I was doing in real estate, in apartment buildings specifically. And then I would start looking for those deals. I would start hunting them down. You know, you're going to need a job to do that. But I would look at that job as more of a means to an end instead of a career that I wanted to retire from. And I would build that multifamily portfolio as quickly as I possibly could and so that I could divert all my attention to that. Yeah, so some of the listeners might say, okay, this, you know, that's great, but how would you do that? Because this time around, you did have some degree of track record, you had some houses, and you had some money from the refinances. Now, if you, if you went back to your 17-year-old self, you know, how would you overcome that? Like, Because you want to fast track it, how would you do that knowing what you know now? First, it's education. When you go out and you are talking to a broker, that's how you're going to find these deals. I mean, there's other ways. There's off-market deals that you could, you might have a deal just come to you somehow. But a huge majority, 95% of the deals I think you're going to get, they're going to come from a broker, especially when you're new and you don't have a bunch of context in the industry. And when you're talking to those brokers, whether you call them out of the blue on LoopNet or one of them might come to you through a reference... If you don't know what you're talking about, you're not going to get that deal. And by know what you're talking about, I mean being educated. You need to know what a cap rate is. You need to know what an expense ratio is. You need to have some key benchmark numbers that you know you have to know water is going to cost you X amount per door. These are all just like by the book type numbers, almost like going to college, right? And if you go and get educated on those types of things, then when that broker comes along or you reach out to that broker, he's going to say, this person knows what they're talking about and boom, here's a deal that they might actually be able to do. I'd go out and I'd do that first. And that might take a little while. That, that, you know, that really takes some work, but so doesn't go into a job every day or so doesn't go into college. And then I would get out there and I would start on... If it was me, I'd start on LoopNet. I would just start calling brokers off LoopNet, looking at deals that they might have. What I've learned now is it's not so much about the deal that they might have that you find there on LoopNet. It's about the other deals that this broker is going to get in the future or when that deal that they have 
changes, the situation changes with the seller, and now he is willing to take the price you'll pay because most of those deals sitting there on LoopNet are probably not a good deal. That's why they're sitting on LoopNet, you know, for months at a time. So I would do that and I'd start building that relationship. And I wouldn't focus on hundreds of brokers or, you know, all these different markets, I'd pick a niche and stick to it. To this day, we have about 200, almost 250 units total that are in our portfolio that we own. And I only have two brokers that I work with. I'd like to maybe have one or two more, but you don't need a bunch of brokers. You need some deep relationships with the current brokers you have. And so I would work on building those up because you want that deal to come to you. Or if it's going to be a deal that gets listed, a lot of times we'll be getting first look at that deal. The broker will call and say, hey, I've got this deal hitting the market next week. Can you tour it now? You have an opportunity to get out and get an LOI, a letter of intent in on that property before someone else even gets the postcard in the mail. And that is such a huge advantage. So building education, building relationship with brokers, and then what about the money part? What are you doing about that? Because you're a poor student. (laughs) So raising the money, there's really... You got to look at money in two separate ways. You got to look at the bank financing and you've got to look at the equity portion, the down payment portion. I would say, looking back now, what I know, don't worry about the bank financing. That's easy. The banks in this day and age are virtually fighting over lending money. It's more of take your pick. Lately, we do a lot of agency financing, it's called, where we will... A Freddie Mac small balance note is the new program I've been using uh, quite a bit. This will be the third one here we close in just a couple of weeks in about a three-month period. I'm either refining or purchasing. They're great terms and whatnot. Even if you can't quite get to the Freddie Mac small balance program, you need a million plus loan amount or some of the even larger programs, you get into larger loan amounts, you get even better terms. Even local portfolio lenders and small banks are easy to get the actual property paid for. It's really that raising equity part that everyone struggles with. Where's my $200,000, my $400,000 down payment going to come from? Plus, maybe the money I need to start putting into this property. So that has to come if you if you don't have the leverage of a portfolio if you're just starting out if you don't have any experience doing this that you can you can work off of that has to come from relationships with other people and the only way you're going to do that is just build credibility with other people by showing them what you do every day showing them that you know what you're doing and showing them that you're not just going out there and buying the first shiny object that comes along just as you've mentioned before that sample deal package you put you know, you show people that this is what I'm looking for. I just haven't found it yet. And to me, what that tells people is that you're not just jumping on the first thing that comes along. My line when I put this uh, last syndication together was this is the best deal that I've seen in at least a year. It really was. There's no lie about it. People knew deals were hard to find. People that have the type of money that are going to invest with you, they're not stupid people. They know that it's an aggressive competitive market right now. And they know that when a good deal comes along, it's not every single day. And so by telling them, look, this is a really good deal based on what I'm seeing, in my opinion here, that really, I think, goes a long way. And that starts with having deals that you've been looking at, showing them it's not just day one you're jumping in. Yeah, that's right. That's awesome. So what are you excited about right now? No job, you know? (laughs) So what are you excited about? So we've really built up our business over the last, really over the last few years. And along the way, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to manage properties uh, when you get to any type of scale. Obviously, like I mentioned earlier, anything above about 20, 25 units, you're going to start needing help doing it. So as you get to several hundred units, you need either property managers or you need to manage yourself and build a team by that is what I mean. Not physically yourself, but build a team that you oversee. So 
my idea of the path this will take has been to build my own property management team to oversee my portfolio. And I have a bunch of reasons for why I come up with that. It's most certainly not the only way to do it, but it's kind of the path we've chosen here. And so we built this this team up now. We have today 13 employees in the office. It's so much easier to run a large portfolio than it is to run a small portfolio. When you have all these different people, you have somebody that does the maintenance, somebody that oversees the maintenance guy, somebody that oversees the guy that oversees the maintenance guy. When you start having those levels, it makes things a lot easier. And that's what excites me is growing that to the next step. I keep just trying to build myself out of this business. And, and we're doing a pretty good job at it. It's not without hard work. So we're, we're out. It excites me doing that every day. I love that. I love going in and kind of just seeing the progress. And have you ever heard the saying, you can connect the dots going backwards, but you can never connect them going forwards. So some days I'll go in and look at what we've built and what it's become now and, and the systems that we have in place and the ease of operation compared to what it was even two years ago. And it's just absolutely amazing and exciting. Also, at the same time, building myself out of the day-to-day operation has allowed me to focus on maintaining those broker relationships. I've joined quite a few other networking type groups, most recently one called EO, Entrepreneur Organization, where you're out with every person in that group has a business with a revenue over a million dollars a year. So you're talking every day with these high-level minds of people that might not be in real estate, but they're business-minded people. And then those type of connections you can make. So I spend a lot more time doing those types of events And then we have, as I mentioned, a little girl who's 16 months old. And that's just awesome to be able to do that outside of the business world. I mean, that's why we do what we do. I appreciate you sharing your story. I think a lot of people will be inspired. So someone wants to do the same thing. They're sitting there in their job. They're like, daggone it, I want out, right? So what's kind of the first thing that you advise uh, someone to do to kind of get going on that path? I would say if you decide that you, you've made up your mind, you want to get into this, you want to get out of your job, you want to create financial freedom for yourself... There's no other way to do it besides getting out there and taking action. And that means not, I'm going to read a book this month. I'm going to, in three months, I'm going to go do this. That means going out and taking massive action. If you do the same thing as everybody else every day and expect different results, that's insanity, right? You need to go out and you need to jump in head first. You need to get yourself educated as quickly as possible. And you need to start taking those steps to meet brokers, to build up a reputation where people are going to want to invest with you. You need to just go out and jump into it. I see so many people that want to get into real estate that spend years, three, four, five years, and they're reading a book here and there. They're talking about it. They might go drive by a property. But unless you take that massive action and do something different than everyone else, you know, or than 95% of the people out there that go to work every day, unless you do that, you're never going to get into this. I'd say get out there and go for it. Yeah, don't worry awesome. about everything you don't know today. That's awesome. So I appreciate you again sharing your story. And I'm just really, really thrilled you're coming aboard as one of our coaches. Really excited that you're doing that and uh, sharing your story and just get everybody pumped up, man. So appreciate it, man. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Josh Sterling. By the way, if you want to get in touch with him, his email is josh at epicpropertymanagement.com. You can connect with him. If you're interested in and possibly getting coaching from Josh or some of the other coaches, please go to themichaelblank.com forward slash coaching to find out more about that. And if you haven't done it already, make sure that you grab my free ebook. It's called The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. And if you enjoyed the show, let me an honest review on iTunes. Love getting those as well. And that elevates the visibility of the show as well. So really appreciate you guys. And I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. 
For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.